Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and welcome to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I am your Canadian-Australian delivering everything, people stuff in leadership. And if you are interested in building fantastic culture and cutting your people management issues by 75%, then, hey, reach out to me. Let's have a chat. I've got some places in my calendar next year to work with some awesome teams who want to build an amazing culture. And maybe you just need some structure and some traction to get going. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at zoe at intercompass.com.au. And let's have a chat. See what's going on. See what we can do. In the meantime, our guest today has a fantastic story. If you've ever wondered about culture and how it can go bad, and more importantly, how you can turn it around, then our guest today has some insights on how he was part of two organizations that took their culture by the horns and transformed it. So this is a step-by-step exploration of what happened, how he went about it. Without further ado, his name is Peter Sokis. He is the current CEO of the city of Unley in South Australia. He's been there since 2011, and he's been through an amazing journey of culture change with that particular organization. Before that, he was one of the general managers at the city of Marion and had various responsibilities, including planning and engineering, community services, and libraries. He's trained as an engineer. And so he describes it as having a big journey in terms of developing management skills, people skills, and getting a handle on what this whole culture thing is all about. Okay, well, without further ado, Let's get into it. Peter, all the way from Adelaide, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you, Zoe, for having me on the show. I'm so excited to talk with you today because it's not often we have a before and after story to showcase for our listeners. And the before and after when it comes to culture transformation is always fascinating because people are always nervous or wary or wonder about, can we actually change culture? What does it take? How fast can you do it? What are the key ingredients? So we're going to mine your experience from being the CEO of the city of Unley as a key talking point today. But before you arrived at the city of Unley, what happened to you before that? Where were you before you were CEO there? Um, My professional background is actually in civil engineering. And so that gives you a strong basis of um, analytics and processes and investigation, I guess. I spent most of my career in local government and for a large chunk of that, I was with another Adelaide council called the City of Marion, where I was fortunate enough to progress through the organisation from a middle management position then to a general manager role for about 10 years as a general manager, where I looked after, at one time or another, most of the operations at the council, uh, from planning, engineering, through to libraries and community services. The City of Marion, is that in South Australia as well? Yes, it is. It's in Adelaide. It's a larger council. It's probably got about 90,000 people at the moment. Okay. And so you climbed the corporate ladder there from an engineer. My dad's an engineer, so I'm well... Uh, well familiar with what kind of brain that has. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So you ended up in general manager role. What happened? I started at uh, Marion as a managing one of the engineering departments there and then um, became what was known as the city engineer back in the 90s. And then I obviously must have done something right. And then um, the CEO at the time offered me the opportunity to manage the planning department as well. 
And so I, I ended up managing the planning department. And then we had a change of CEOs. And I always remember that day where he pulled uh, the executive managers together and he basically said, I've done a restructure and here's the new structure and I'm creating a general manager of operations and uh, this is your role, Peter. And that was quite daunting because suddenly a number of your peers had lost their role and you had embraced all of their roles and he basically said to me if you don't want to do it i'll find someone else so that was a welcome to the real world and a a challenge so there was a little just want to check on the emotional state of the people around you so did they have to leave did people have to leave or did they just get demoted i think uh, from memory one person left and another one got demoted so it was very strange having one of your peers have to report to you uh, very uncomfortable for them and me. I mean, we, we made it work because we got together, you know, we got along very well. But it wasn't probably the way I would do things. And so the lesson for me in all of that was how you bring along people in any structural organisational change and the level of communication and engagement. Well, yeah, slapping them with, I've done a restructure, <laughs> here you go, this is it. It's a bit of a shock. Exactly. And when I remember raising with the CEO at the time, do you think there could be a more equitable fit in the organisation? He basically said, well, if you don't want to do it, I'll find someone else. (laughs) So I had about two, three years of running the majority of the organisation then, all the service delivery side. So it was a great introduction, though, to finding out a little bit about libraries, community services, swimming pools, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, that CEO left and uh, we had another CEO come along and then he did a restructure pretty quickly after he came along and actually probably took away about a third of what the previous CEO had given me to another uh, a restructure to another person. And I always remember the feeling then that, you know, the initial feeling is what have I done wrong in a sense, like uh, I've just spent three, three or so years trying to pull this together and now you've come back and taken it off me. Oh, yeah. Your nose too well and truly at a joint, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. But he was very good. And um, you learn your skills and your approach through people you work with. And he was very much around well-being. And I remember him saying to me, Peter, if I let you continue on with all your functions and departments, etc., that you're managing, you're going to be burnt out within a year or so. So I think that was, you know, on reflection, that was a, that was a very good move. Uh, I was felt part of a team, etc. And um, you know, he had a he had an interesting approach, and very much he was very much focused on organisation culture, and that's probably left a bit of a legacy with me. Where um, for the next ten years or nine to ten years, I became much more involved in organisation culture and changing culture towards what he thought was going to be the desirable culture of the organisation. So that, in, that included things like uh, surveys, of course, and getting involved in a lot more corporate activities rather than just your functional areas. So I'm curious about a leader's vision for the culture. How did he express that? How did he communicate that? Mm. It was really interesting because he brought, uh, his experience was with a, a tool called Human Synergistics, and they uh, described their culture, their desirable culture, as a constructive culture, which 
is really difficult to explain. And so we spent probably a good year or so trying to understand what does a constructive culture mean. But in essence, it is around balancing an achievement, so an organisation that wants to achieve things, an organisation that provides opportunities for personal development, an organisation that works together as one big team in a sense, and a friendly organisation. So it's a balance between caring for people and task as well. And I think if you strip away all the jargon from the tool, then, I mean, who wouldn't want to work in an organisation that provides opportunities to develop? There is a sense of purpose or meaning in what you're doing. Um, so a sense of achievement. And also it's a friendly place to work in where you feel supported. And I think if you can achieve that, I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds healthy to me. Absolutely. And before we hit record, you were telling me about a catalytic, catalytic? <laughs> Not cataclysm, a, a really significant event that happened to you there where I think it was, sounds like it was under the guidance of this particular new CEO who's doing this culture change program and included some sort of feedback mechanism and it landed like a wet fish on your plate. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, I guess the CEO of the day was very much into having psychometric tools being used and so to assess leadership's uh, personalities and uh, strengths and weaknesses, etc. And I remember we had engaged a consultant um, for us to answer a, a, a quite a detailed questionnaire and survey. And when he was debriefing us with the results, I remember getting the results and he came to me and he said, Peter, you are, if anyone wants a decision made, if anyone wants to achieve things and outcome action oriented, you will get things done extremely strong in that so you're the person to go to but you're about as warm-blooded as a lizard which for me was uh, uh which was a real reality check where i guess you know i was very focused on getting things done and task oriented and probably that's a bit of the engineering uh background coming into that delivering totally etc <laughs> uh but at, at the expense of ignoring some of those soft people skills was this a shock to you i mean if it's bit shocking to be told you're warm-blooded as a lizard. That's a bit harsh. Um, so was it a surprise to you that you weren't perceived or you were not demonstrating caring, supportive characteristics? Probably to the extent that the feedback I received, it was a bit of a surprise. I always would think that, and again, I, I think very process-driven and outcome and let's get this done and let's get that done, but not so much probably as blunt as, as that feedback, but it certainly helped getting that feedback because then you could start to look at, well, how do I improve? It's all around the approach rather than the skills. So that's probably led me into quite a bit of uh, reading and you learn through experiences, of course, reading and an interest in you know, what motivates people, how to get people motivated and uh, the, all the relationship side of building a solid team. So I'm curious that out of that, you know, it sparked the reading and learning piece. What books do you remember were really served you at that point? Uh, in terms of after the uh, after the feedback? Yeah, after the, I was about to say dead lizard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, after the lizard thing, what books did you turn to to help you develop your relationship skills? Look, I think I said um, certainly all the Stephen Covey stuff as well. I have to read quite a lot around Stephen Covey and particular prioritizing and and in a strange way also I started to read more of the 
outside of the leadership books, more of the spirituality type books. And the CEO was a Buddhist, I think. And so in terms of, you know, a, a way of life. So I really started to get interested also then in this whole notion around humility and serving others. And your role is to help others achieve what they want to do rather than the reverse. You know, every now and then I do like to read that sort of stuff because it reminds me about purpose, etc. The other big connection for me through all of it, and it was a bit of a gap, is that sense of purpose and making change for the greater good. So while we were working in a senior position in local government, quite often you can get carried away in the bureaucracy of things and seeing yourself as doing nothing more than signing letters, preparing reports, etc. And making that connection with what difference you make to the lives of your residents, I think is a key important thing. And we spent a bit of time as a team doing that. And I think that sense of purpose, once you have that sense of purpose, I think it's extremely motivating. And we then translated that down through the whole of the organisation where we allowed each team to develop its own purpose statement in a sense and to add some meaning as to their day-to-day work. And we let them have some freedom around that. And I remember our arborist team that went around planting trees and pruning trees, their catch was, well, we plant trees to make dogs happy. (laughs) So, which was a really interesting take on things, but it just shows you the different avenue. Of course, that wasn't the whole thing. It's a dog um, pee stop. I love it. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But, but having that sense of purpose for me was really quite important because otherwise you would walk away at the end of a week thinking, well, what have I achieved, etc. So it sounds like the City of Marion experience was quite pivotal for you. Was it from there that you launched into this bigger position or different position as CEO at the City of Unley? Certainly. Uh, after Marion, essentially, I did um, go to the City of Unley. And what I found at the City of Unley is Coming from Marion, where we did organisation culture surveys every two to three years, three years or so, that had never been done at Unley. There had been some climate surveys undertaken in the past, but there was never organisation culture. So we didn't know what culture we had and what tools we were going to use to measure the culture. Now, the experience I had was 10 years using human synergistics, so I translated that. So Unley, and I'm sure there are other tools. To- there are plenty of other tools as well. Before you did the profiling instrument, so new person landing into a new work environment, that we have those first ninety days where we can see things that other people can't because they've been in it for so long. What did you notice about the environment when you first arrived? It was a friendly place, so that's not not the issue. But I think lacked some of the achievement lacked some of the systems and processes. It was almost in some parts stuck in a, you know, 20 years, the way things were done 20 years before. Now, Unley is a smaller organisation than Marion, but that's no reason why we couldn't introduce processes, systems for continuous improvement and um, certainly the delegation side and empowerment or empowerment I think was lacking. It was very hierarchical or where it wasn't hierarchical, there was no framework around it. It was almost based on personal relationship stuff. So what did you do first? Did you instigate a culture survey first? Or tell me about your plan. 
Yeah, so what I did first, uh, I mean, once two things, firstly is, is recruit an executive team. So the things went parallel. So firstly, recruited some general managers that there were some vacancies, but then had a series of staff meetings where we explained or I explained that I wanted to do an organisation culture survey. From my observations, the organisation had a good culture, but we wanted to find out what we are as an organisation and then a roadmap as to where we want to be. And I think it's important to communicate what organisation you want to be like in terms of a culture before you do the survey. So people understand, why are we doing this survey? Because you, know, you can say, Let, let's do a survey, but really have no reasoning behind it. So the two things, one is to communicate that we're not broken as a culture. We're doing a lot of great things. But let's see just how we are and where I want to be. And we talked about an organisation that empowers people, you know, all that stuff around constructive culture. We want to empower people to make decisions. We want people to work together as part of a team. We want them to feel supported. We want them to have a say in the work they do and the goals they want to achieve. And we also want opportunities for people to um, professionally develop themselves. When you put that message out, then people really got quite excited about participating in the survey. And to an extent that we had um, 96% participation rate. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, and the survey is something like 200-odd questions. It's not, oh my goodness. It's not a five-minute <laughs> exercise. It's probably up to about a one-hour exercise. So we had close to 200 people participate in the survey. We've got about just over 200 staff. And then, of course, that survey result is broken down into teams, departments, divisions, and then as an organisation as a whole. And then I think getting those results and sharing those results and saying it is what it is and not being defensive about those results, and it was really easy for me because there was nothing that was done before, so it establishes a baseline in a sense. So this is who this is the organisation we're at. Let's look at all the positives. Let's look at the areas we can improve and then put in place action plans as to where we want to be in the next couple of years. So once the results came out, we shared those with all the teams and then started to allow and provide support for those teams to develop action plans in how they would address issues that came out. One of the things around the tool we used, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but it does give you some, uh, a bit of a roadmap in issues that um, you should look at addressing. And so for us, there were things that they're called causal factors. And so you get a circumplex result of how the organisation is. And then underlying that, there are about 30 causal factors, which can be positive or negative. And negative is a gap, which you need to try and address. And positive is you're doing pretty well above the average. So I'm curious about this, right? I'm I'm always interested in what creates or detracts from good culture. So what kinds of things are causal factors? Mm. So, and, and we had about seven positive causal factors and about 23 negative causal factors. So plenty of opportunity to grow there. And some of the causal factors were things like reward and recognition. So people felt that they were not recognised for the work they were doing. Upward communication and downward communication and that was around the timeliness and honesty of communication. People felt that they weren't aware of what was going on and all the messaging was filtered and too late. 
We had things like fairness of appraisals. So there was a perception in some areas that people would get a promotion or would get a job or their appraisal would be, uh, you know, if they were a favourite, if they were favoured, they would get a good appraisal and if someone didn't like it, they would get probably a negative appraisal. There was stuff around empowerment. People did not feel empowered. Uh, and also we had teams were not working particularly well together. So there was a view by some teams that the work they were doing was really good, but the work other teams were doing was not good. Interestingly enough, customer service focus was also negative for us. So lots of opportunities, as you can see, to improve in all those areas. And so what you do is you get these gaps. And of course, it's, it's a bit of a bar graph, which shows you um, the extent of the gap or otherwise. And then the executive got together and decided that, you know, we were trying to address the top four or five as an organization. And then, of course, they vary for each department. Each department would have their own causal factors. So, in other words, we found that the community area, reward and recognition was, uh, was a positive, was not a negative. It may be because the people that normally work in community are actually very good at recognising the efforts of, of others, whereas in uh, some of the corporate areas, recognition was a negative. And so you could have teams work with other teams and share their experiences and closing the gaps. But for us, the main ones as an organisation were empowerment, communication, reward and recognition, and uh, goal emphasis was a very good one. And that's this thing about people not understanding what difference they make, their role makes. And then, of course, communication. So we, we set out to address those causal factors. I love how that uh, happens both at the team level as well as an executive level. So it's not a top-down thing. It's kind of whole-of-system approach and intervention. Absolutely. And then you did another survey a couple of years later. So I think the first one was 2012 and the next one was 2015. But in those three years, so you set this, like, let's work on these things. How did you check in on whether the things were being worked on was working or not? How did you stay across all that? Sure. Well, so some of them were easier to address than others. So, for example, with the communication aspect, we um, certainly started to have staff meetings and regular bulletins from myself and the executive. The fairness of appraisals, we actually introduced a performance review process throughout the organisation. So everyone had a performance development and review plan where we the manager would sit down with a staff member and review their performance over the last 12 months and set goals for the next 12 months, agreed goals. And there were two aspects of that. One was some tangible outcomes in terms of projects or otherwise. And then there was some behavioural stuff as well. So to make sure that we supported the desired behaviours we wanted. Each team had an action plan. So each team had documented what they were going to do to address the causal factors in that team. Each manager was then responsible as part of their performance review to ensure that those action plans were carried out. And then that, that went all the way up to general managers, etc. And we would check in on those action plans every six months. We set up a leadership group that included general managers, managers, team leaders and coordinators, basically anyone that was leading staff. And we would have initially it was monthly and then we dropped it to bi-monthly 
um, days when we took everyone off site and had some development, I guess it was professional development in the behaviours around getting to a constructive culture and also some of the dealing with things like communication, performance, appraisals, managing poor performance, reward and recognition, managing difficult conversations, etc., etc. So we were really keen, I think, to um, say, if you're a leader in this organisation, here is a skill set that we would like you to have and we will support you to get that skill set. Functions like HR and finance are there as consultants to help you do your job. They're not going to do your job for you. So when I, for example, when I started at the City of Unley, if any manager had a HR problem, they would just handball it to HR and let them manage it. Uh, I remember setting the budgets when I first started here and basically finance ran the whole budget process and would almost watch you just key the numbers in, in into Excel spreadsheets or whatever it was at the time. We wanted to change all of that, saying if you're a manager at the City of Unley, you are expected to manage your budgets, to develop and set your budgets and monitor your budgets. You're responsible for managing people in your team. We will help you do all that, but you are ultimately responsible. So that was a big difference from what was at Unley before, where perhaps people in management positions were promoted there because of their technical skill set rather than managing the functions of a department. So three years later in 2015, and I always said we would do the surveys every three years, it's a long journey, we saw some major differences. So from the causal factors, I think I, um, if you recall, I said there were about seven positives and 23 negatives. We almost saw a complete reversal of that where it was about 23, 24 positives and down to about seven negatives. And the circumplex uh, in terms of you know, achieving our desired culture had shifted in the right direction. And there were some things that you measure, again, the survey um, spits out some results for you. And what we had seen is that people were, well, there was a reduction in competitiveness in the organisation. So in other words, different areas of the organisation would work together rather than compete against one another. We saw that there was less oppositional behaviour to new ideas, um, which was a positive. So we concentrated on a lot of that. And also we saw a reduction in people avoiding making decisions. So when I started at Unley, a lot of the decision making was made at the higher levels. So people were afraid to make decisions, I guess, or felt that they weren't empowered to make decisions. We wanted to change that and we wanted to say that Everyone can make a decision at the right level. And so we had seen that start to improve. The more and more decisions were being made by people at lower levels. We also started to start thinking about innovation and doing things differently rather than doing them the way we've been doing them for years and years. Local government is largely seen as a fairly conservative industry. Yeah. <laughs> and we wanted to change the way we do things think outside the square and we had seen there was, there was quite a bit of that as well some of that was facilitated because at the same time of, as we were running all these other programs we started to review the way we did our services or provided services so not only from a financial perspective but can we do things better can we do things differently 
And so that started to get people thinking about how can we improve our services just purely because we've been doing things this way for the last 10 years. There's no reason why we can't do it differently. So there's quite a lot of process that we're going in. Yeah, that's a big transformation and shift in values and behaviors over a three-year period. You did the survey again, and did you repeat the process? So going back through the survey, putting it out to teams, looking at what the detractors are, what's working, and then set a new culture plan for the organization and team. Is that what happened next? Yes, that's right. So after 2015, we got the results again, and this and a similar process. Teams developed their action plans, and it took a few years for staff to fully understand it. Again, because some of the jargon involved with the tools, so they need a bit of support in that. But I think it needs a number of years for things to embed in the organisation, and then it takes on a language of its own in a sense. So teams were much more comfortable about doing this work and seeing tangible changes. If they could see changes occurring, then the enthusiasm and, and the motivation is there to do that. There were some other things that came out you know, after three years, you start to see that there's a bit of a self-selection of staff in the organisation. So that culture may suit some people, may not suit other people. So we found that in terms of a brand, it started to attract certain people to Unley. We're not, we're certainly not the only council using this tool or culture, but Unley started to get a bit of a reputation for some of this work. And so um, we would start to recruit with particular skill set and through attrition and you'd start to get people in that were, were a much better fit to the culture. I mean, one of the ways you certainly influence culture in the short term is recruit the right people. If you're trying to introduce a culture with existing workforce, in some cases that takes longer than, than other areas. I'm curious about that, you know, recruiting the right people. How do you define what the right people are? Are you looking at skills? Are you looking at values? Are you looking at attitude? Tell me a little bit about the process for identifying rightness in potential candidates. Yeah, it's a good question. I think what we did is start to balance the technical skills versus the attitude and uh, behaviours and values. And we link the values with the desired behaviours of the organisation culture and actually had a group of staff. So I, I digress, but we actually had a group, a working group set up of about eight staff throughout the organisation that had representatives from blue collar depot through libraries, white collar, etc., to develop the organisation's values because the existing values were about 20 years old almost or 15 years old. And we realised that, I remember doing a staff survey and asking how many staff had been here for more than seven or eight years, and there weren't many. So what it showed me is that a lot of staff that were working at Unley, we had these sets of organisation values, but they've inherited them from the past. So this group came to me in the executive and said, look, we'd really like to work on this project where we refresh the organisation values, not throw them out, but refresh them all. So we thought that was a great project. And they ran a really thorough process through organisation where they sought ideas around the values and uh, used the words, held lots of workshops, forums, went through a democratic voting process <laughs> about um, the values, ran it by the executive. And I can tell you, you know, we found it tough with one or two of them, 
but we were very, very clear that if it resonated with most of the staff, then we would have those um, values. I got to ask, like, what values did you find challenging? Uh, no, it was more the words, not the values. So okay. it, was, it, it was really the words. I mean, in terms of principles around innovation, customer first, working together, integrity, no one is going to argue with any of those values because from the value itself, then there was some work around logos and the actual words, you know, that were being used, but very supportive of the whole process. The reason I raised values is because then we found that the values were very consistent with the behaviours in the culture we wanted to establish. And so when you go out and recruit staff and you say wanted a planner, skills, ABC, qualification in planning, etc., etc., we also started to put in their sections around behaviours and attributes. Yep. So your question about what getting the right person was more about behaviour and attribute. We certainly didn't discard the technical skill set, but through experience, and I think we've all gone through this, you can get a technically competent person with the wrong attitude or behaviour, and that is much harder to live with than someone who has the right behaviour, right attitude, right values, or consistent, I should say, and lacking in technical skills because you can always develop the technical skill side of it. We found that it's very hard if you have a mismatch in behaviours and values with the organisations to get that right as distinct from technical. So we don't sacrifice the technical skills, but we don't put 90% emphasis on technical we started to look at the behaviour and the leadership skills people in management positions would bring in. I'm interested in how you actually recruit and assess for that. You put it in your job requirements, you know, that we're looking for these particular behaviours and attitudes. How do you actually test that when you have somebody in front of you? Well, we started to do psychometric testing for positions to different levels. So if, if it was someone at a general manager level or a manager level, then that would be slightly more detailed, comprehensive psychometric test. But we started to run psychometric testing for all positions, including, you know, blue-collar positions at the depot in terms of road maintenance or tree planting, etc. What kind of tool did you use for the psychometric testing? Look, they vary, but one that we've used is Facet 5, I think is one, which matches the job and the personality traits. So that was one I'm familiar with that we've used and some simple questionnaires as well. Yeah, fantastic. By and large, we've got it right. You know, you do get a match and certainly it does highlight potential issues. So at least you're informed if you make a decision that there could be potential issues in certain areas. It's a long journey, isn't it? So you kicked off there in 2011, it's 2020 now, so nine year journey. I'm curious about cycles in culture as well. Like the way that we're describing it sounds like a linear journey with an upward trajectory. In your experience, not only at Unley, but at Marion and other places, have you seen cycles in culture and what have you learned from that? You know, I think there are cycles. You're absolutely right. Organization culture, you know, a key component is the leadership that the organization has and leadership at a number of levels. We found that a department's culture can go up or down depending on the manager slash leader of the day. We've had complete turnaround in culture where 
both ways, where a department was didn't particularly have a very good culture, again, based on our tool. The manager leaves, you get the right person in, again, that word right person, and then the culture just changes phenomenally for the better, you know, in, within six to 12 months. I've seen the reverse as well, where if you get the wrong person in that leadership role, then the culture goes down as well. So wrong person in terms of skill, attitude, behaviour? Is that what you mean? Particularly attitude, behaviour. Skills, I think, are relatively easy to get the right skill set. I mean, people find that more simpler to understand the technical skill set. It's the behaviour and attitude that I think is a little bit difficult. Um, The other thing about cycling culture, though, I think you can get complacent. So we're doing another survey next year every three years, so 2012, 15, 18, 21. I think that's probably could well be the last survey using this particular tool. People can become complacent and almost learn learn the answers you want to hear. So so it's about changing that. So I I agree, there are cycles and a lot of it has to do with as staff come into the organisation or otherwise. All right, so I have a couple of final questions for you. So this has been very big learning experience for you, both at Marion and at Unley. Can you remember a time where you had your perspective turned upside down or pivoted or swiveled in any ways? What happened? I think it's probably more about not one instance, but I think when you first start out in your leadership journey, you think you have all the answers and you think your answer is the right answer and you think your approach is the right approach. And quite often that's not the case, of course. So for me, on a personal level, seeking everyone's point of view, uh, particularly the executive, sitting back and understanding everyone's point of view and what they bring to the table, because everyone has a different perspective on it, enables you to make an informed decision. The other thing, I guess, coming from that technical background is over time seeing the genuine good intentions of people, it's easy to start to be cynical and be suspicious about people or motives, etc. But starting from the page of everyone's here to do the right thing, they have good intentions, see the good in people rather than the reverse. You know, like you don't have to build my trust, but actually start with I trust you and let's start on that basis rather than you need to build my trust. Does that make sense? Mm. And so what what was the catalyst for changing your attitude there? Oh, look, I think it goes back to that survey in um, where I was uh, advised that I was about as warm as a a lizard. (laughs) The lizard moment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I think it is because it does actually start to to give you a wake-up call because, see, if I work by myself on single projects, you don't really rely on anyone else. You know, you just get, you come in, do your job and you finish. But as you develop into a leadership role, your output is dependent so much on the work of others. And so it's important that you understand how people work, what motivates them and support them because they're there to support you in a sense. So you, you still get things done, but you get things done through other people, not yourself. And that's a really, you know, that comes along at an earlier stage in the career. But I find that now with staff that have been promoted 
from project managers into managers of departments or otherwise, where they can't use the same skill set they used a year ago, where they ran everything and they had spreadsheets and they had budgets and they had project management toolkits, et cetera, et cetera. Because you can't now be on top of every project in detail. You have to rely on others to do their bit. So you spend more time about working with staff and for staff and making sure the relationships and the coordination is there. So it's a natural evolution, I think. Yeah, a, a gradual piece. So my last question then is, you're very big on personal development and well, team development, leadership development. How do you stay fresh? How do you keep yourself on the learning edge? What kinds of things do you do? Um, still do a bit of reading, but I make sure I try and do things out of my comfort zone, which is not always, uh, that's not always nice. But I think if you get out of your comfort zone, that actually does keep you fresh and learning and developing. The other things I like to do now is I'm actually on one or two boards outside of local government that are community based. And it is about giving back to the community. So for me, it's that it's that sense about the meaning, uh, I guess, the um, making a difference. And for me, probably the last five, six years, I've been doing a lot of reading around humility, uh, which I think is a key essence for me. I'm very, very, um, very interested in that aspect of leadership rather than the traditional in the past leaders that are out there, you know, um, charismatic and out there and doing all their stuff. Um, very much more around humility, et cetera, and certainly getting things done through others, et cetera, and letting others take the recognition and the reward. So with your reading around humility, is there a particular book or avenue that you go down for that? Look, it's probably a lot of different, it's different books. It's, uh, again, some of the leadership books, I guess, but also, again, I, I touch back onto books on spirituality, et cetera. Done quite a bit of reading around Patrick Lencioni is, is someone who I really like his books, are very story based. And I've used quite a number of his books for team development with the executive management team. And um, I find his stuff is really easy to read, understand, comprehend. And I really like his stuff. Fantastic. But it's bits of everything, I think. So, you know, you can't, there's no favorite. I think it depends on the stage of life that you go through. And some authors are more relevant than others as you go through, but there's always some interesting pieces there. That's very wise insight. Peter, thank you so much for sharing your fantastic story of culture change and leadership and personal growth. I really appreciate it. And this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for having me. That was such a fascinating interview. I love the story of how a leader can come into an organization and be open to what's going on and then use tools specifically to get granular with that, like to really dig under the surface and see what are the causal factors to a great culture and a not so great culture and to decide ahead of time what kind of culture you actually want. It's rare that you see a lot of leaders doing this kind of work. I mean, there's so much to do in a role like a CEO job. You got to deliver on your projects, your programs, and your business as usual. And culture is how we deliver that and how we deliver it well. So I love Peter's insights on the step-by-step -step activities that he did with his team to turn things around and to really work on people's capacity to perform well at their roles and with each other. 
I love too also his observation and curiosity around humility. Humility is one of the centerpieces for keeping away shadow temptations in any of the archetypes in leadership. And I think it's really useful to have that as a key premise. I'm here to serve. I'm here to learn. I'm here to grow. I don't have all the answers. I've learned a lot and there's always more to learn. Fabulous insights. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to work on your culture and your people management skills, then let's have a chat. Just email me, zoe at intercompass.com.au, and we can have a conversation about what's going on and what you would like to go on. (laughs) We'd love to hear from you. All right. In the meantime, live well, lead well.